I'm Kristen, and this is the Explorer in You podcast. Now, what I've discovered after visiting five continents and some amazing places is that the greatest thing standing in your way of seeing the world is what you believe is possible. I believe that travel is for everyone on any budget, and it doesn't have to be overwhelming. So this podcast is all about unlocking the Explorer in you. You'll hear stories from people who will inspire you to set big travel goals and show you how to achieve them. Let's explore. Hey there, listeners. Today I'm talking with one of my very good friends, Jessica Carroll, about planning a trip around wine. Jessica is assistant winemaker at Big White House and John Evan Sellers in Livermore, California. And she really touches all aspects of winemaking from harvesting to crushing to bottling and tasting and even tours. She has over a decade of experience in the wine industry, and she's traveled throughout Europe, including the south of France, Italy, Germany, to some of just the best regions to taste wine. So she really knows her stuff, and I'm excited to talk to her today. Besides Jessica's vast knowledge about wine, I also wanted to talk with her because Jessica actually had a completely different career before pursuing her passion for wine. And I've always been just really inspired by her courage to pursue her dream job. So in this episode, we talk about wine, we talk about travel and what it's like to change careers to do something you love. It's a jam-packed episode that I know you'll enjoy. So pop open your favorite bottle of vino and let's dive in. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for being on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about tips for traveling when wine is your focus. Traveling around wine is so much fun, not just because wine's amazing, but because it can take you to some really awesome places, as you know. And it also, I think, can really connect you to the place, the food, the history, the locals. I definitely want to dive into that. But before we start, I wanted to ask you about your journey into the wine scene. I think it's inspiring. And I think it's an interesting story that people would find inspiring too. So if you want to tell me a little bit about how you got into the wine scene. Of course, I kind of stumbled into it. (laughs) I graduated from University of Portland and came back to California to get my first adult job. I was a design engineer for a transportation engineering company in the Bay Area. And I knew pretty much a week in that it wasn't for me. I I did not enjoy how isolating it was. It's one of the things I discovered about myself uh, that I actually enjoy talking with people and thrive off of that interaction. However, I still think very logically and like an engineer, so I wasn't about to quit a very nice paying job to not have a plan to go somewhere else. Um, and then that's when the recession hit. So I, I stayed in that position longer than I intended. But I was wine tasting in Livermore Valley one day with some cousins and my brother. And we tasted uh, at a small family owned place. And the girls behind the bar were about my age and they, they had careers and jobs as well. It was something that they did for fun. And I asked, well, how do you start? Because I knew a lot of Livermore was based off of like the 
it was just kind of a weekend gig you do a couple times a month. And they said, just give your email on the way out. And so I did. And then that's how I started. <laughs> um, I enjoyed wine. I've since come to love it and appreciate it more than I ever thought imaginable. The more I was there, the more I wanted to be there and the more I wanted to learn. I, this is definitely my passion in life. And I'm very, very lucky that I was able to find, um, first of all, find my passion in life and then be able to work in it. Yeah, that's so hard for a lot of us. We're always searching for that thing that's going to really get us excited to get out of bed in the morning. And you found that. I did. I'm very, as I said, very fortunate and, and, and blessed to have uh, that gut feeling that, that led me to that. And not just the gut feeling, but actually the courage to act on it. Because I think a lot of people have that gut feeling, but they stay at the engineering job or the whatever job that, and you know, everyone has their reasons, right? If you have families to support and, you know, there's just all kinds of reasons to keep you at a job, but not everyone sort of takes that leap. And I totally get that too. I was at a position in my life where, you know, I was, and it took me years to come to that conclusion. So I wasn't exactly a, a quick act and change, but I definitely wanted to make sure that that's what I wanted because I knew it was going to be a salary cut and wanted to just make sure that that was the change for me. And I was fortunate to be in a place in my life where I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any kids. I still don't, but you know, I was at a point in my life where I was able to make that transition. So do you have any advice for people who are thinking about making a career pivot into something completely different or like a, a lesson learned that you can kind of look back now and say, oh, that I wish I would have known that? I wish I had done it sooner. This is so funny. I had a conversation with a different friend about fear, but it was fear that held me back, a fear of the unknown, right? It's what holds all of us back. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's, there's reasons, you know, sometimes you, you can't take that leap because you are supporting your family or, you know, it's just not financially feasible. Mm -hmm. And I guess my advice is to self-educate as much as possible. So if you're looking to get into whatever field, do as much research as you can. I mean, Google like crazy, just absorb as much information as you can. So I ended up doing a certificate of analogy at the community college in town, just because with my hands-on experience and looking at the cost at getting a master's, I made the decision to do the certificate just to get some book learning. And then this is a field that's very, it's still a craft. So it's, it's still driven by hands-on experience and that's going to serve you better than anything. And I think there are other fields like that as well. So Take a side gig if you, if you can fit it in your schedule and try to get as much knowledge and experience as you can. Yeah, I think besides the self-educating, what I see in your story is that you positioned yourself around the wine industry on your off time. And so you, you positioned yourself to be ready when the opportunity arose and educated when the opportunity came up. Can you define analogy for us and spell it? 
Oh, um, well, so analogy is the science of winemaking. And so in the States, it's E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Um, but in I'm like the worst speller. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I, I should have asked you to spell it. Um, however, in other countries, they spell it O-E-N-O-L-O-G-Y. Okay. I think that's how I've seen it is with the O. There's, there's occasionally an extra O at the beginning. Interesting. Okay. And it's the study of winemaking? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good segue. Speaking of <laughs> winemaking and wine. So let's talk about top things that someone would need to think about when they're planning a trip around wine. So if you could tell us a little bit about your process for planning a trip, like do you start with the wine or do you start with the location? You could do either. I've done it more recently by picking the wines, but that's also because I'm very into wine. So I've kind of centered my travel around what wines I want to go taste, but you can certainly do it the other direction, especially within Europe. There are not very many places that don't make wine. So there, there's ample opportunity to explore the local wine culture wherever you go. And then what regions would you recommend? I want to say for different types of wines, but that's a very broad category. <laughs> that is very, that's, oh, that's tough. Gosh, I have my favorites. Let's talk about your favorites. Okay, so my, some of my favorites, because there are many, uh, there's the Piedmont region in Italy, which is a northwestern part of the country, and it's home to um, the Nebbiolo grapes. So Verolo and Barbaresco are two of my favorite regions. And this place is hands down one of my when I'm very stressed, you close your eyes and think of a think of a calming location. This is definitely one of the places I go. It's absolutely beautiful. The it's not a highly touristy area, so I I enjoy that. And there's actually some great tour guides if anyone's ever interested in that region. They're they're expats that live there now, and they do a great job of doing a daily. They pick you up for the whole day and take you on a big tour. Oh, awesome. You know, I'll get those names from you and then I can include them in the show notes. And so people can go and find them. Sure. Yeah. I, I love, and it's food and wine is often hand in hand as well. So it's very much ingrained in the culture. It's almost one, one thing. Okay. That's the way it should be. <laughs> in my opinion. I agree. <laughs> right. And so Piedmont is one area. Mm. The Northern Rhone region, which is in France, it's just south of Lyon. I absolutely love the wine that comes out of there. It's, it's Syrah based on the red side and then uh, Roussan, Viognier, and Marsan on the white. Cote Roti is a small sub-region within that, that between that and Barolo Barbaresco, they're probably some of my favorite wines in the world. Have you gone anywhere that you were like, Nah, this didn't really live up to my expectations. Ooh. That's a hard one with wine. I mean, it has to be pretty bad. That is a really, I'm not sure there is a spot. They've all exceeded expectations, including Liechtenstein. A friend and I traveled last spring and we hit France, Italy, Liechtenstein, 
and Germany for tasting. Wow. Um, and mostly we stopped in Liechtenstein just to go to Liechtenstein. And as it turns out, we happen to be there on the one day a year that they do an open house for the five wineries that they have. So that's, that's part of it. Uh, when you travel for wine, um, obviously we didn't do our research ahead of time and it, it worked out for us, but um, knowing what wineries are in the area. Okay, so doing that research beforehand. Yeah. Um, a lot of places in um, what is considered the old world, so Europe, uh, requires a reservation. Definitely need to do your research ahead of time, and often you need to make the reservation weeks, if not months, out, depending on how how high traffic they get. So probably if you go in the summer, it's going to be mm-hmm. harder to find a reservation or short notice anyway would be my my guess. And then in the fall, you're not going to get a reservation almost anywhere because all the winemakers are busy harvesting. Harvesting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, Europe's a little different than the US. In the US, you just kind of wander around and go into open tasting rooms and do tastings in Europe, most of it is still reservation required. Um, It's occasionally done in someone's living room. I've done that. I've done it in the basement cellar. There are occasional uh, regions that have started structuring for more of an open, open tasting, kind of like the U.S. does. Do they have tasting rooms similar to like Napa, or is it more actual wineries that you're visiting? You're more likely to visit the wineries themselves versus a tasting room. Tasting rooms are becoming more common, but chances are you're still, you're still going to be on, on the winery property, potentially talking to someone who helps make the wine, either the winemaker himself or, or someone closely related. And do they have tasting fees? Not typically. Um, Typically it's free, but with an expectation of you to purchase wine at the end. I would say at least a bottle or two a person, which most European countries subsidize the wine industry. So your price per bottle shouldn't be too bad. Do you spit the wine out there? So traditionally, yes, you should spit. It is considered a sign of respect actually to spit because you don't want to dull your senses for the wines at the end of the tasting from actually having consumed the alcohol at the beginning. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. However, uh, unless they provide you with a spittoon, I think the expectation is for you to consume it. Got it. They don't want you just spitting randomly anywhere. No. (laughs) (laughs) Generally not. If you're in the cellar, I mean, that might be, but also I, I've been presented with a spittoon a few times and used it, but other than that, they would expect you to just drink it. And they're typically serving a flight of wine? Yes, typically a flight. And you said that a lot of places, food and wine go together. So what does that look like? It depends on the region. Um, In Italy, I found most places put out some sort of um, charcuterie board with uh, 
often with cured meats, um, maybe some crackers and cheese, but then I've been to other places that, that don't do that. So it kind of, it varies from spot to spot. And how easy is it to ship your bottles home that you purchase? Not super easy. <laughs> so you're better off just drinking all the wine there then. Yes. Just drink it there. You'll be fine. I have found ways to do it because I tend to buy more than most. Um, and carrying that much wine while you're still traveling is, is quite painful and very heavy. I've used like mailboxes, et cetera, places in Italy. They partner with an importer. So I was able to send some wine home that way. Depends on how many bottles. If it's just a few, honestly, stick it in your suitcase and there's a way to declare it on your way in if it's above a certain amount of money. So it's only when you're getting into like case territory. Yes. (laughs) So you've done tours on a boat and you've also done your own driving tours. I mean, obviously there's a big difference, but what do you like about each of those experiences? The boat one is more recent, so I'm going to start with the with the driving tours, and I I love it because you set your own schedule. You're you're in charge of of deciding where and when you get there. So if you want to spend you know five days in one spot and two days in another spot, that's totally your choice. The flip side on the boat is I liked for a week I unpacked once and then didn't have to move my stuff mm. at all, which was it was I liked it more than I anticipated I would. I I went it, it we did a riverboat cruise with the winery um, through the Rhone Rhone Valley and not that I wasn't excited. I was still excited. It was just kind of, I was a little hesitant not having that freedom to be able to, to move around as I want through the countryside. But I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I, than I thought I would. It was really nice to just have the same spot you go to rest your head. I do feel like you, I missed some of the things I would have liked to have spent more time on, but uh, it just means I'll have to go back. Yeah, there you go. Hey listeners, I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to take just a few seconds to let you know that I have a special bonus for you. Jessica has helped craft a two-week sample itinerary for wine tasting in France's wine country. So head on over to explorerinnew.com slash podcasts, where you'll find a link to download this free itinerary. I hope you enjoy it and let's get back to the show. Is it beneficial to learn a few words of the language of the country that you're visiting, like a few wine terms, or does wine terminology kind of bridge that language gap? Wine terminology actually bridges a lot of the gaps. Since I've gotten into wine, I've done two really big tours in Europe, and it was amazing. It was less difficult than I anticipated to get my wine questions across. A lot of the terminology we use is rooted in French or Italian and German, and that's often the same, very, if not the same, the very, very similar words from country to country. So what questions can people ask to make them seem more knowledgeable about wine? Honestly, at curiosity, most wine people are super passionate about wine and love, love to talk about it. So if you're in a region um, 
I would, I would be upfront. To be honest, I don't know a lot about this region. Please tell me about it. What, what grapes are grown here? What are your favorites? You know, why, why do you work in this community and, and why have you chosen to be here? Yeah, that makes sense because they are probably very passionate about what they do and like sharing it with people. Wine is all about uh, community and sharing and, and building connections. And uh, most of us in the industry feel very strongly about that and, and love to share our knowledge. And then what advice would you give someone who wants to plan a trip around wine? Like, where would you recommend that they start? I would start with um, what kind of wine do you like? Do you like mostly bubbles? Because there are some very famous regions worldwide that make fantastic sparkling wine. Or do you like heavy reds or light reds? Or are you, do you only do white wine? I would start with what, what wine you prefer and then, and then build it from there. Are you a spreadsheet kind of girl? I'm more of a calendar person actually print them out still, even though you're, you're not supposed to waste paper, but I print them out and, you know, I'm in this region for these days and here are the appointments that I have set up and I find I'm more visual. So it, it's, I like having the, the calendar. Yeah. Mine's kind of a, it's an Excel spreadsheet slash, to me, it looks like a calendar, like the way mm-hmm. I've color-coded it and yeah it's super nerdy Ooh, <laughs> I'm like gonna, you have to share that with I know, me I'll have, to, I'll have to share that um I don't know I might not want you to see my <laughs> my level of nerdiness but I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of I think that's <laughs> awesome <organized>, right <laughs> we should plan a trip for you what's so what's your favorite wine? okay I like this I like I do like Viognier I like Rieslings too but Viognier seem to be, you can find some that aren't as sweet. I mean, you can mm-hmm, do with mm-hmm. both, but um, yeah, yeah. So that would be, so where, where would you say I should go? I would have you fly into Lyon and spend some time in the Rhone Valley. I, Condrieu is the subregion just south of Lyon. Um, and I think it's hands down some of the best Viognier on the planet. Okay. I'm writing this down. And then... Um, you could, depending on how much time you had, you could dart over to Germany or Austria. Um, there's a couple spots in Germany, Mosul and then um, the, the Rhine. And then um, Alsatian Rieslings are some of my favorites. And that's technically French, um, but I believe, if I remember correctly, it's a part of the continent that's flipped between Germany and France over the many, many years. So um, it's still, you know, high elevation and, and very bone dry, crisp Rieslings come out of there. Okay. Those two are on my list. <laughs> when we can fly again. <laughs> yes. When we can fly again. I know I'm very much looking forward to that. And you have a little bit of a library, don't you? Wine? Yes. (laughs) I was just thinking um, next time we can get together, I just got a Riesling that I'll I'll save to open with you. It's, it, it should be very, very good. Oh, that sounds amazing. So where can we find out more about Big White House Winery? I work for Big White House Winery and John Evans Cellars in Livermore, California. 
I'm the assistant winemaker. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest. It's at Big White House Winery. And then you guys started doing something interesting there where you are pairing food and wine. Is that or with seafood? We started to be a pickup location for real good fish out of Moss Landing. So they have uh, relationships with local fishermen in Northern California. And so they collect the fish and then process it and then send it out. Um, they do have a home delivery option. Then you, you suggest wines to have with the fish that comes? Correct. Yeah. So we're, we've only been doing it for about a month, so we're still feeling it out, but we're, we're making wine pairing suggestions depending on a recipe that you have or whatever the fish is that week. And then obviously I get the fish as well. So I've been cooking it at home and taking photos and, and doing the wine pairings with that. Yeah. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about how in Europe food is so connected to wine and it seems like such a natural fit to make that connection for your customers or your wine club members to help them, you know, see that connection too. It's, that's awesome. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, one more way to connect us. Okay, I end every show with this question. What was your most meaningful travel experience? One of them is, was my first international travel experience when I was, I was, 16, um, when my aunt and uncle took me with their daughters to Paris. Um, uh, we were actually there when they switched from the franc to the euro. Wow. Um, so that was really fascinating uh, to watch that transition happen in real time. Another one would probably, my mom and I did a mother-daughter trip when I turned 30. We were there for not quite a month, and that was absolutely amazing. I think I will look back on that trip the rest of my life with very fond memories. And that was something very special for, for her um, and I to, to share together. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Explorer and You podcast. Don't worry, we have a new episode every week. Subscribe so you don't miss it. And don't forget to visit explorerandyou.com for more inspiration and tips. If you want to share the love, you're welcome to send this podcast to others. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.